Hello and welcome to the GMHBA Healthier Together podcast series. This series has been developed to assist you to master your health and well-being. Health is too hard when you try to go it alone, and we know that together we are healthier. Today on the show, we'll be discussing how food affects our mood and strategies to maximise your mental well-being with Professor Felice Jacker. Felice is the Director of the Food and Mood Centre at Deakin University and Founder and President of the International Society for Nutritional Psychiatry Research. Welcome to the show, Felice. Thank you. Felice, your current research focuses closely on the links between diet, gut health and mental and brain health. How did your career and your background lead you to this fascinating area of work? Well, it was very circuitous and definitely not planned. <laughs> so my original degree was in fine art. So I was going to be an artist. So I never studied science or anything like that at school. This is a lesson for all of you out there who think, why do I need to learn maths? I'm never going to use it. <laughs> um, but whilst I was at university doing art and then a bit later when I decided to go back and study psychology, I always had a very strong interest in diet and nutrition and, and this understanding that diet or, you know, the food that you consume every day is basically the petrol that you put in your body that makes it run, you know, every aspect of your body and brain. And whilst I was studying psychology, I started to realise I was very interested in research rather than being a clinician or a psychologist. So I then sort of moved into psychiatric research. And when I did and started to look at what the science had done and looked at in this area, I realised that there was very, very little science or certainly very little good science looking at links between diet and nutrition and mental health. As well as that, the field was very much still where the, the wider field of nutrition was, where it was just looking at individual things, you know, like folate or omega-3 fatty acids or something. But of course, we don't eat just individual nutrients. And this is back in the early 2000s. And about the same time, there was a really fascinating area that was coming to the fore in psychiatry where we were starting to understand that our immune system was really important in our mental and brain health as well as in our physical health. So your immune system, of course, is there to spring into action if you have a disease or a, you know, an acute illness or an injury, and it's very important. But there are many things in our modern lifestyle that prompt our immune system to be sort of chronically activated at a low level all the time. This is called systemic inflammation. And a lot of people will hear about this if they're reading and listening to health-related information. And we were understanding that inflammation seemed to prompt the risk for, for example, depression. And, of course, diet was very important in modulating uh, immune function. And then at the same time, there was a lot of work being done in, uh, in LA and San Francisco where they were looking at the influence of different types of dietary components, whether unhealthy like you know, saturated fat or sugar or healthy like berries and omega-3 fatty acids from fish on this uh, new area of interest called brain plasticity. And they were doing this in animal studies and they were showing that diet had a big impact on the functioning of this area of our brain called the hippocampus. The hippocampus is central to our learning and memory, as well as our mental health. So it's really like our brain power. And this is important, of course, right across the life course. And then there was this new field of uh, epigenetics where we were starting to understand that you have your genes, but things that happen in your environment actually can switch them on or off or help to control that. 
So there were a whole lot of reasons for thinking, okay, nutrition is probably just as important to mental health as it is to physical health, but the research isn't there yet. So I set out to kind of address this and my PhD looked at the links between the quality of people's diets and whether or not they had clinical depressive or anxiety disorders. Now, we did this in the very large Geelong osteoporosis study, and many of your listeners may actually be part of that study because it involves a a great number of people from this area. And we're very, very grateful to all of them for for participating because it's allowed us to do this really world-leading research. So... I set out to look at this. I got a lot of poo-pooing from the wider, you know, psychiatric and medical community. And that's mainly, I think, because they just hadn't been thinking about things in this way and also nutrition training. They get almost none at medical school. So people weren't making that link. But I thought that there was a pretty good um, reason to investigate this. So I set out to do this and uh, I looked at the links between diet and mental health in over a thousand women, taking into account things like their education and their income and body weight, how physically active they were, whether or not they smoked, all of these things that could have had an influence on both their diet and their mental health. And then we put them all together. And of course, the wider context for this is that unhealthy diet is now the leading cause of early death in middle and high income countries. It's number two overall. So our diets have changed enormously over the last 100 years, and that's because of industry. Big food have said, oh, crikey, we can manufacture these food products, put them into packages. People love them. They're convenient. They're cheap. We can market them as much as we want. We can make them available everywhere, whether you're going to fill up your car with petrol or you're just walking down the street. And, you know, we're really primed to want to eat those foods. They interact with the reward systems in our brain. And, of course, they then displace other more wholesome foods that we used to eat. So the diet of the globe has changed enormously. And we now have a situation where overweight kills more people than underweight and where we have evidence of what we call malnubesity. This is where people are obese, overweight or obese, but they're actually shorter. This is, we're seeing this in children. In Australia, less than 5% of people consume the recommended intake of vegetables and legumes, and that's less than half a percent of children. In Australia, 35% of our average energy intake comes from these ultra-processed fast foods, 40% in younger people. In the US, it's even worse. It's about 60%. And this is having a terrible impact on our health, and this is why unhealthy diet is now the leading cause of early death. At the same time, we know that mental disorders, particularly depression and anxiety, account for the leading burden of illness across the globe. They affect everyone. It's a, you know, they're highly prevalent and they can really have an enormous impact on an individual's life, but also the family, the community and the public purse, you know. So there was another good reason to look at this. So I did my PhD and found, as I expected, that women who had healthier diets, more in the foods that we know are good for us, so vegetables, fruits, whole grains, fish, lean red meat, unprocessed, were much less likely to have these clinical depressive or anxiety disorders. Whereas those whose diets were more along a Western-type dietary pattern with more of the unhealthy and processed foods, they were more likely to have anxiety, depression, symptoms and, and disorders. And that was, again, independent of all those other things we looked at. 
So that study had a big impact. It was on featured on the front cover of the American Journal of Psychiatry because I think it was just novel. People had not been considering this. And happily at the same time, like within a three-month period, there were two other main key studies published, one from Spain and one from Britain, showing very similar things. And so this really got the field started. And on the basis of this, um, I was able to go to a lot of other research groups around the world where they had collected information on diet and also on mental health, but they hadn't actually put them together. And so we were able to look at this again and again in populations in, so for example, Norway and Britain and other parts of the world. And then, of course, other people were doing this as well. Everyone was like, wow, we hadn't thought of this before. So they started to do that. We also did studies, and this is really important, in adolescence. So we know that half of all mental disorders start before the age of 14. Now, when people think about mental disorders and the risk factors, they're things like family history and early life stress and trauma and life stress and socioeconomic disadvantage, these sorts of things. And they're very difficult to change those sorts of risk factors. But now we're starting to understand that there's also these modifiable risk factors. So diet, but of course exercise also has a good evidence base. We're even understanding now that smoking, cigarette smoking, if you smoke during adolescence, it's very clearly associated with an increased risk of mental disorders because the, the substances in tobacco smoke have a very important impact on the developing brain. And that if you give up smoking, you actually get a lot of benefit to your mental health as well as your physical health. So diet, exercise, smoking, and probably sleep too, to the extent that you can control your sleep, they're all modifiable risk factors for depression. And what that means is that you can start to think about prevention. So we looked at this question in adolescence, and we showed over and over again in all sorts of different populations that the quality of adolescence diets was very clearly linked to their mental health independent of their family functioning, family conflict, socioeconomic status, all of these other things. And then we went back even further and we did a study in more than 23,000 mothers and their children and we looked at mothers' diets during pregnancy, children's diets during the first few years of life and children's mental health over the first five years of life. And we showed very clear links between those things. Particularly, we saw that women who, were, when they were pregnant, were having lots of unhealthy type foods with high added fats, refined sugars, those sorts of foods. Their children had higher levels of what we call externalizing disorders. These are, you know, the acting out sort of anger, aggression, you know, tantrum type things. And these, along with internalizing disorders, which are you know, anxiety, crying, worrying, nightmares, these sorts of things. These are kind of markers of vulnerability to mental health problems later on. We also saw that the kids' diets were really important, regardless of what mum ate. If kids ate healthier diets, they were better off. If they had unhealthier diets, they were worse off. And this was really important because we already knew that diet during that very early life, during development and early life, has a big impact on your physical health over the lifespan, but it hadn't been shown in mental health. Since then, two other big studies, one in the UK and one in the Netherlands, has shown the same thing. And we have a lot of evidence from animal studies to say that what people eat when they're pregnant has an important uh, relationship to the children's mental health. So all of those data together tell us that across countries and cultures and age groups, 
the quality of people's diets really matters to their mental health. Now, the other thing is, if you think about when I said right at the start that the animal studies were showing that diet had a big impact on this part of the brain called the hippocampus. And that's been shown over and over again in animal studies. But we led a study to show that this seems to be the case also in humans. So we looked at uh, more than 250 older adults from the area around Canberra. This was a study that we did in collaboration with the ANU. And we looked again at the quality of their diets and the size of their hippocampus. And we'd already shown that the quality of old people's diets was related to whether or not they had depression as they got older. But this looked at uh, all of the other factors, such as socioeconomic disadvantage, um, stress, depression, etc., and showed that over and above all the other factors that we looked at, there was a very clear relationship between the quality of people's diets and the hippocampus. And if you remember, this is key for learning and memory and probably cognitive decline. Now, we know from the wider field of Alzheimer's research that diabetes, high blood glucose, even within the normal range, um, body weight, hypertension, these are all risk factors for cognitive decline and dementia. And of course, they're also, risk factor, uh, they're also influenced by diet as well as exercise. So diet and exercise might be the key for avoiding dementia as you get older. So the large body of research that we and now others have generated tells us that we can think about targeting diet for both prevention and treatment of depression. We've just led the first randomized controlled trial that shows that if you're depressed and you get help to improve your diet, that can have a big impact on your depression. Uh, colleagues of ours in South Australia has just, have just replicated that. They found the same thing. And now what we're doing at the Food and Mood Centre is really focusing on the gut microbiota in particular. So uh, the whole area of gut research is fascinating. So we've known forever that there's this gut-brain axis and the, the gut and the brain, they talk to each other all the time. About 10% of the information is coming from the brain to the gut and about 90% is actually coming from the gut to the brain. So it, there's this very strong bi-directional relationship. And in particular, if you're stressed, your brain tells your gut to slow everything down, you know, because it says, well, come on, we don't want to be wasting energy on digestion when you need to be running away from a lion. So you slow everything down that can have an impact on your gut. And we all know what stress can do to our guts, whether it's short-term or chronic. So that had been known for a long time. But it's only since the 1980s that we really started to use this new gene sequencing technology to actually look at what's going on both in and on us. And what we know now is that there's like 100 trillion microbes that live on our skin and in every crevice and orifice in our body. And we can't live without them and they can't live without us. And actually, genetically speaking, you are 99.5% non-human. So nearly all of your genetic material is actually made up by, of microbes, genetic microbes. So, and I think about half of our cells are microbial and half human. So they're really omnipresent and we're increasingly understanding what they do. Now, the largest reservoir of microbiota live in your large bowel, so right down the very end of your bowel. And their role primarily is to digest the food that doesn't get absorbed further up. So foods that are easy to absorb in the small intestine, like sugars and fats and things, they get absorbed further up. But when you eat dietary fibre, such as you're eating your plant foods and fruit and legumes, etc., 
it makes its way down into the large bowel and there many trillions of gut microbiota uh, help to digest that plant food and that fibre and get extra energy from it. But in that process, what they also do is they produce a whole range of molecules that has a very important impact on the functioning of your body. These are things called short-chain fatty acids. These short-chain fatty acids affect the way genes are expressed right throughout your body, including your brain. We're only just starting to understand what they do. They seem to have a very important role in driving our immune system. Remember we said the immune system is important in mental and brain health as well as all sorts of other aspects of our health. The, the gut microbiota do many things. They also talk to the brain constantly. They make neurotransmitters. 95% of the serotonin in your body is actually produced in the gut. And the, the bacteria use those neurotransmitters to talk to each other and to send signals to the brain. So uh, they're very important as far as the brain goes, but they also play a big role in regulating our uh, blood glucose, which has huge implications for our health, and our body weight. So you can actually make a thin mouse fat by doing a stool transplant from a fat person. You can actually make a, um, a rodent, a rat or a mouse, have depression and anxiety-like behaviours by giving them a stool transplant from a depressed human. You can even make a, a rat or a mouse have hypertension, so high blood pressure, if you do a stool transplant from someone with high blood pressure. So we're starting to understand that these gut microbiota, they're not just there to digest our food, but they're there to do a whole range of other really important things. So you can just imagine what the problem might be if you're eating a diet that's only got the simple stuff in it, that doesn't even make it to the large bowel. It's only got sugars and fats and refined, very easily digested white carbohydrates doesn't even make it to the large bell. It doesn't give those gut microbiota anything to work with. So the gut microbiota have to have fibre to be able to produce all the molecules and do the things that they do. We don't eat fibre these days. You know, it, some estimates are that when we were cave people, we would eat up to 100 grams a day of fibre. You know, we're out and about eating a huge amount of plant food and a huge diversity of plant food. Nowadays, we should be aiming for a minimum of 25 to 30 grams a day. We tend to get about mm, 10 to 15 if we're lucky. So that means we're starving the microbes. And uh, research scientists in America who are doing a lot of work on this have shown that after four generations of a low-fibre diet, you lose bacteria for good. You kind of make them extinct and you can't get them back again, even when you reintroduce fibre. Now, there are some bacteria that are essential to humans. They don't live anywhere else. Once they're gone, they're gone if you're not eating the fibre that feeds them. So it has really large implications even for the human race. And if we think about the wider picture of of immune diseases and autoimmune diseases that are so rapidly increasing, so allergies, food allergies, asthma, um, um, MS, things like this, they're all linked to the immune system. We think that the gut is, and what we're doing to the gut is having a big impact on that. And this is what a lot of people are busy investigating. So it has really important implications for our health. But the gut microbiota seem to have a big impact on brain plasticity and this hippocampus that I talked about before, 
on the blood-brain barrier, the integrity of the blood-brain barrier, on a whole range of things that are relevant to the health of our brain. So, and in particular, this is really scary, what we know from animal studies is that the, the microbiota that live in the gut of an infant, so a newborn over the first couple of years of life, play a very important role in the development of their brain as well as training their immune system. So because babies get their gut microbiota from their mum, from breastfeeding, and then of course when they start to crawl around and pick things up off the floor and stick them in their mouth, but also make that transition to food, it's absolutely critical to get this right because that has then a big impact, we believe, on the uh, brain development and the development of their immune system, whether or not they're going to go on and develop autoimmune diseases such as celiac disease, MS, those sorts of things, but also for their mental health. So there's every reason that we need to be making sure that before and during pregnancy, for example, we're eating right and feeding our bugs and that that baby is getting exposed to the right sorts of bacteria and the really healthy input. So when, when a baby has breast milk, that breast milk has a whole lot of what we call oligosaccharides. And people have been very confused about this for a long time because the baby can't digest them. So they think, well, why are they there? Now we know it's because with the breast milk comes bacteria and the oligosaccharides are there for the bacteria to eat, not for the baby. And it's providing the very important sorts of bacteria like bifidobacteria that the baby needs to have a healthy gut and therefore healthy brain, healthy immune system. So the gut and our understanding of the importance of the gut is, is really revolutionising medicine in many ways. And centrally, the most important factor that affects our microbiota is our diet. So what are the key dietary components we should be including to improve our mood and our memory and our All brains? of those things. Well, there's two aspects. There's the things that you should be eating and then the things that you definitely shouldn't be eating. Right. So obviously we've talked a lot about fibre. So in plant foods, so this is all of your vegetables. You think about, you know, some potato, sweet potato, um, leafy green vegetables of all different types, broccoli, um, you know, capsicum, all of the things that we eat, they all have fibre, but they also have polyphenols. And I'll talk a bit about them in a second. And the idea is that the more diversity you get, the more diverse your gut microbiota. And that seems to be a healthy thing. You want It's sort of like feeding a rainforest or a zoo, you know, you're making it uh, more diverse and that makes it stronger. So fibre from vegetables, fruits, whole fruits, um, but also those beans that I talked about. So um, beans of all sorts, chickpeas, lentils, all the different sorts of beans that you can think of, they're all just fantastic food for your guts. And, you know, we think about our old peasant diets where people lived on beans. That was actually a really good thing. Um, but also, of course, whole grains. And so this could, might be your sourdough whole grain bread. It might be oats in the morning, not the pre-prepared, pre-cooked ones, but whole oats. Um, quinoa, you know, frica, there's a whole range of different fantastic types of whole grains that you can use. Um, all of those things provide the fibre that your gut needs, your gut bacteria need to be able to ferment it, break it down and produce these molecules. But they also seem to do really well with what we call polyphenols. And these are the things that are found in plant foods, particularly colourful plant foods. So they're in things like berries, they're in green tea and black tea, 
They're even in red wine, small amounts, coffee. These uh, foods, even a bit of dark chocolate, but of course in all the different fruits and vegetables that we've talked about. Polyphenols seem to be not only really important for the gut bugs, but they actually may help us to not put on weight. So they've done animal experiments where they feed one group of, of rodents a high-fat diet, and of course they put on weight really rapidly, uh, and another group where they just get their normal ratty food and they don't put on weight. But if they have a third group where they give them a high-fat diet but also give them polyphenols, they only put on half as much weight. So this is another really good reason to eat your veggies and get as many of these beautiful, colourful foods into you as you can. So... Uh, the other aspect is these mono and polyunsaturated fatty acids. We have abundant evidence, particularly for the omega-3 fats that are found in seafood, that they're very important in protecting our cells, protecting our brain, uh, helping our hippocampus to grow new brain cells, and very good for the gut. And the monounsaturated fats, such as you get in olive oil, also fantastic. So some people think that if you cook with olive oil, that it somehow destroys the olive oil, creates toxic you know, molecules. That's not true. We've done a lot of research on that. That doesn't, uh, is not the case. Particularly, you need to choose the extra virgin because that's got a lot of these antioxidants in them and polyphenols. Um, but then the other side of the coin. So, you know, your gut bacteria, we're starting to understand, are enormously affected by any sort of chemicals that go in. And these include the artificial sweetness. So the artificial sweeteners that you get in all these horrible diet soft drinks and foods and things like that, they, it looks like, actually make you put on weight. Isn't that sad? And they do that because they change your gut bacteria in a way that promotes weight gain. And the other thing that does that is these emulsifiers that you get in processed foods. So your gut lining, it's covered with a nice thick layer of mucus, or it should be. That protects the lining of our gut and it means that what's in the gut stays in the gut. A whole lot of things can affect that and create what's called leaky gut. A lot of people will have heard of this. It's basically, it means that your gut lining becomes more permeable and the contents of the gut can then get out into the bloodstream. And when that happens, your body mounts an immune response because it recognises this stuff coming into the bloodstream as something that it needs to create antibodies for. So you get this systemic inflammation and emulsifiers act like detergent to the gut wall and they strip the mucosal layer. That's what the research so far suggests. The other thing that the gut doesn't like is binge drinking. It really doesn't like lots of saturated fat. We already know that saturated fat is problematic for a whole range of diseases, such as cardiovascular disease, but it also promotes the growth of these we call them bolophila bacteria that um, are very much associated with inflammation and disease. Um, so again, the gut loves plant oils and fish oils and it doesn't like saturated fats. So you want to stay clear of the saturated fats, artificial sugars, um, uh, the um, emulsifiers, and also keeping in mind that high blood glucose... And so uh, hyperglycemia, that's called, actually also induces leaky gut. So even though sugar itself doesn't seem to reach the large bowel that we know of, it's absorbed into the small intestine, being in the blood, it raises your blood sugar. And raised blood sugar, we know, is a risk factor for virtually every chronic disease under the sun. 
and it also seems to induce leaky gut. So sugars, fats, salt. I haven't touched on salt, but it looks like that's not very good for your gut microbiome either. It reduces the, the good, healthy lactobacilli. Um, all the things that are in processed foods and junk foods, your gut really doesn't like them, and that will have implications for the health of virtually every bit of your body and brain. So what about herbs and spices? Do they have an impact? Herbs and spices are very high in antioxidants and potentially polyphenols. Um, and so absolutely, and certainly if you replace your salt and other flavourings, artificial flavourings with herbs and spices, you're going to get a double benefit because you're not having the bad stuff and you're also adding extra good stuff. So say I make this change to my diet mm -hmm. uh, towards the whole foods and the healthy eating how long is it like likely to take when you change your diet before a difference is noticed, mm. both inside and out? Yeah, it's a really great question. So we've only had two studies so far that have looked at the impact on depression of dietary change. And just because of the length of the study, we know that within 12 weeks, you can certainly change that on by changing your diet. But the studies that have been done looking at diet and gut microbiota, you can start to change your gut microbes within hours because you actually get new microbes every day within 24 hours. They multiply so quickly and then they die off and you go to the toilet and get rid of them. So you can change your gut microbiota within two days. Now, really interestingly, there was a fantastic study that was done and it looked at the gut microbiota of um, South Africans who were eating a traditional diet, which is very high in fibre and all sorts of good things compared to African-Americans who are eating a typical American diet. They found, as they expected, that A, the diets were very different, of course, in their composition. The gut bacteria in those people were very different. But also, the people in African-Americans had much higher levels of these inflammatory markers that we know are risk factors for, for bowel cancer. They were much lower in the South Africans. And then what they did was they swapped their diets for two weeks. And in that two weeks, they affected a huge shift you know, the poor rural South Africans, their gut microbiota got far less healthy, less diverse, and they got many more of these inflammatory markers. And of course, the African-Americans improved. So that was in two weeks, but there's other studies that have shown big shifts even within five days. So if we can destroy certain species of our microbiota with a poor diet, can we just take a probiotic supplement to bring them back again? Um... No. <laughs> Look, we, we think that probiotic supplements can be quite useful under certain circumstances. Certainly, uh, if you have to have antibiotics, and again, I would only advocate having antibiotics when you actually really have to, I mean, when it's life-threatening. Um, but otherwise, they're, 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 they may have a bit of an effect, but they're transient. They don't hang around. So they pretty much, they come in and they go out again. Some of them don't even make it to the bowel because they, they get um, eaten up in the stomach with the stomach acids. So the effect that they do have, it might be useful, but it doesn't, it's transient. You know, you're not going to get the big shifts in beneficial bacteria and gut health just by taking a probiotic. You really do have to change your diet. So you mentioned before the uh, Deacon Food and Mood Centre. Mm -hmm. So can you tell us what is the Deacon Food and Mood Centre and what work do you do? So I set this up at the end of 2016 
and primarily first as a website because people were asking, how do we find out more about this? And of course, there's a huge amount of misinformation out there from people who purport to be experts, but they're not looking at the research evidence. They're not scientists. They don't understand how to interpret and relay research evidence. So we wanted to have a, a, a website where people could come and you know get good evidence-based information about their diet and mental health. So that was the first thing, and then it was just me and two PhD students. And then over the last 12 months, we've grown very rapidly. And from the beginning of this year, we're now at uh, nearly 20 people. So that's wonderful, um, but it means that we're doing a whole lot more studies now. We're doing it with almost no funding. You know, it's very, very hard to get funding for research in this area. So we're doing a lot with very little but we're trying to get more research funding through philanthropy and joining with industry and every way we can, really. But what we're doing many studies on is uh, this link between diet, the gut and mental health. So one of the studies we're doing is called microscope. So people who are coming to have colonoscopies in the area, whether it's at the Epworth or Geelong Hospital, they will be asked to participate and they'll be asked to give us a stool sample before they have the colonoscopy and answer some questions. And then we'll take another little stool sample while they're having their colonoscopy because we want to understand what the bowel prep does to the gut bacteria. And then we'll take another sample a month after they've had their colonoscopy and ask them some more questions. So we're going to look at a number of things there, people's mental health, their lifestyle, their gut microbiota. But we also want to see what sorts of things affect how quickly the gut microbiota re-establishes after the bowel prep. So that's one study. We're about to start a randomised control trial in women who will be randomly assigned to get either A2-only dairy or conventional dairy for a period of time. And they will actually get their dairy products given to them, so it's a pretty good deal. And what we'll be looking at then is um, measures of mood and stress and cognitive function, but also their gut microbiota. So that's really exciting. That'll be starting really soon, like within weeks. Uh, There's another study that we're helping to run. It's up in Melbourne called the Gut Feelings Trial, and that's one of diet and and probiotics and um, versus placebo in people with low mood. So that's another one. Uh, The Gut Feelings Trial, if you look at the Food and Mood Centre Facebook page, it's on there. Um, and well, there's many studies that we're doing. The big Geelong osteoporosis study, which is really our flagship study, is such an important study. We're collecting stool samples from people who are coming to the study. So, as well as blood, they're giving us, they're parting with a bit of their poo. We're so grateful to them because we're already starting to see that this is giving us really useful information. That may in the end, if we can get the funding to extend this and to to analyse the data, and we're trying to find nearly $3 million worth of funding and we're talking to the government and industry and everyone we can think of, we think we're going to be able to do the research that will support individual nutrition plans, individual personalised medicine, personalised nutrition, understanding who's at risk for what disease and then what we need to do to intervene to change it. So this is potentially the most important study. It's a big study. It's an expensive study. So we're trying really hard to get money for that. Um, We're also developing online resources. So we're developing this year an online program that's meant to be uh, very easy and doable for people to make those changes to their diet and to understand why they might do that. And we're making a little app that goes with that. So we're doing lots of different sorts of research. As I said, lots. we're doing lots with very little 
Um, but over the last 12 months, we are starting to get philanthropic funding, which has just been marvellous. Um, Fernwood Gyms, their, their foundation, has funded a postdoctoral position. And now we're starting to actually be asked to have input into big health services, Health Scope, Origin Youth Health, Headspace. You know, and they're going, wow, we might actually be able to help people by teaching them how to cook. What a revelatory idea. <laughs> and, you know, we want to help them do that, but we want to actually measure that and say, okay, well, is this working? Are people changing their diet? And if so, is it having an impact on their functioning? So if listeners want to read more about it, where can they go? So they can definitely head over to the Food and Mood Centre website. That's very easy to find and it's got lots and lots of information. We have a blog that comes out of there as well and you can read that on the website or you can um, sign up to the Food and Mood Centre Twitter uh, or my Twitter or Instagram or, you know, any of those social media. We've got a Food and Mood Centre um, Facebook page. Um, I'm writing a book at the moment that will be published through Pan Macmillan uh, towards the end of the year. So that's exciting. Um, if people are really interested in the gut stuff, colleagues of mine who are really good mates over in Ireland, they are the world leaders in gut-brain access research. They mainly do, you know, animal studies, but they really, really know their stuff. And there's a great book called The Psychobiotic Revolution. It's just been published. It's fascinating. Um, Michael Mosley's new book on gut health, fantastic, really, really easy to read and lots of good ideas for food and recipes and things like that. So that's another good one. Um, so that would be a good starting point, I think. Professor Felice Jacker, thank you for joining us on the GMHBA Healthier Together podcast series. It's a pleasure.